You're listening to The Invisible Blog. Hey guys, just a heads up, um, because most of this blog is about how things are pronounced and how things sound, there is no transcript of this blog. I'm going to work on one, but because of the way that I would need to transcribe things and spell things out, um, it was going to delay the project by literally a month, and I really want to get into these plays with you, I want to start playing in the language with you, so I figure better to put this out in an audio version, I know most of you listen to it rather than read it anyways. Um, my apologies if you do enjoy reading these, uh, I will try and get some form of transcript or notes up for at least the patrons, what I'm working off of. But unfortunately, you will not have the brilliant editing of Peter Mosley and Liz Rosenberg to help you out, Peter, to make sure I spell words correctly and Liz to make sure I don't blather on incessantly. And you're stuck with both of those in this case. So my apologies, but I hope you like the blog. Uh, so without further ado, The Beginner's Guide to Shakespeare, Part 2. How to Read Shakespeare. So there you were. High school English, brain full of hormones, and an English teacher number 577 in your life drops the first Shakespeare you ever read on your desk. If you were lucky, it was a comedy. If you weren't, it was Macbeth. And at the age of 16, you opened up the first page and you read, Duncan, what bloody man is that he can report? New line. As seemeth by his plight of the revolt, new line. The new estate, Malcolm. This is the sergeant, new line. Who like a good and hardy soldier fought, new line. Gainst my captivity, hail brave friend, new line. Say to the king the knowledge of the broil, new line. As thou didst leave it, new line. What? And on you plotted for as long as you could, or at least until you caved and got the spark notes. And if you did plot on, man, did you plot just sentences that started in the middle, weird line breaks, punctuation that makes no sense, and long, indecipherable monologues about people who aren't in the play and who you've never heard of. And I wish I had been there. I wish I'd been there to tell you not to worry, because... As hard as Macbeth was to read for you, it would have been twice as hard for Shakespeare's actors and impossible for his audience. You have to remember, Shakespeare's audience are watching his plays in the 1590s, right? About a third of the men in the country can read about one in ten women. And while the higher class folks watch the plays the way you and I do from pews, the rabble, most of the people who saw these plays stood in a big open mosh pit that smelled like urine because people urinated down there and it was filled with oyster vendors and beer salesmen and people just talked among themselves while they waited for the next sword fight or cannon fire. But more importantly, the text was way faster and pronounced totally differently than we pronounce many of those words today. Now, I'm not going to go too far into original pronunciation, but it's going to come up in this specific blog, and I'm going to bring it up in later blogs when we're talking about verse and words. It's what people call OP in academia, but I put a link in the description to a video of two guys that specialize in it. Definitely worth checking out that video, but just for us, listen to this clip from the video of the opening to Romeo and Juliet in the original pronunciation. 
two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona, where we lay our sin, from ancient grudge bred to new mutiny, where civil blood led civil lands unclean. From forth the fatal lines of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose misadventured piteous overthrows doth with their death bury their parents' strife. Okay, so if you're like me, you can't get over how much that sounds like Jim Dale doing Hagrid from Harry Potter. Or if you're not like me, maybe a pirate or Mike Myers doing a Scottish accent. Whatever you thought, one thing is clear. 1590s English sounds nothing like the Elizabethan English we picture. You know, there's no posh powdered faces and high voices. I mean, London is the Brooklyn of England, baby. And the other thing you might have noticed is that it's fast, right? I mean, I was actually lucky enough to take a workshop with those gents. And let me tell you, two-hour productions of Shakespeare, their foot. These guys were speeding through this stuff. And so did Shakespeare's actors, because if they didn't, well, people would start throwing oysters. Okay, but all that aside, that's not how to read it, right? I mean, it is how to read it, and we're going to talk about that in a second. But that was more how it was performed. To read it, all you need is two things. The rhythm and the rising line. So... The rhythm you've actually probably heard about before. Iambic pentameter, right? Ti-tum, 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 right? I am, two feet, means that the emphasis is on the second foot. Ti-tum, not ti-tum, right? Pentameter means five meters. Now, to be clear, there are way, way better sources on the history and origins and uses of iambic pentameter than me. Feel free to dive in. If you're curious about that kind of stuff, there's some amazing writing on it, but... For our purposes, all you need to know is ti-dum, 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 right? The key, however, that in my opinion unlocks the door of understanding Shakespeare's meaning and how to read it casually is that after we recognize the rhythm of Shakespeare, we need the rising line for the meaning. See, Shakespeare's actors needed their cues, their stage directions, their motivation built right into the text form. They couldn't write out each stage direction or acting note. Each punctuation mark is an actor instruction. Each word was a direction. And while I'm sure three of you would love to hear about first folio punctuation theory as espoused by Stella Adler and later Acolytes, I said I'd make this easier to read, not my face easier to punch. So I'm just going to focus on the rising line. But if you do want to hear about Adler pronunciation, let me know, because I will totally go into a punctuation blog for you, and it will take me 84 hours of pure, boring talk about what commas mean to Shakespeare. Even though most people think that theory doesn't actually shake out. Don't listen to them. So, the rising line. Sorry, the rising line. The rising line is simply this. Each meter of iambic pentameter rises and peaks at the fifth for its meeting. So... Ti-tum, 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 ti-tum. And, and I know that sounds silly. I know I sound silly, but get get it in your bones because we're going to be playing with it a lot. Ti-tum, 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 ti-tum. As an example, let's break down a couple of lines of one of the most famous speeches in Shakespeare so you can see how this actually shakes out. This is the opening monologue from Richard III. We're going to look at it as it's typically read, and then we're going to apply what we know about the rising line, see if we can make it a little bit easier to read for ourselves, all right? So, as opening line, you're going to recognize it right away. Now is the winter of our discontent, made glorious summer by the son of York. Huh? Okay, 
Now, let's be, as my favorite voice and speech teacher once said, goofy galloping horses and see what that tells us about the text or how it feels. Now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by the son of York. Okay, I, I exaggerated, obviously, but that's weird, right? All the words are wrong. It feels kind of stompy, kind of mad, almost sarcastic, right? Well, it should. Richard is furious. He's exploding onto the stage for us mid-rant. You know, the modern version is like, oh, here she is, right? And I'm like, oh, there he is, right? When you're mad at someone like 45 minutes late from it's like, oh, there he is, right? That's what he's doing. Finally, so it's like after all the fighting and stuff that matters, after all the discontent is done, right? You hear that emphasis? It's just glorious summer by the son of York. And by the way, uh, son of York is the obvious literal son over York, the celestial body, but it's also the son, as in the child of the king whose name is York. And how does this help us determine the meaning? Well, look at the first reading, right? Now is the winter of our discontent, right? What's the meaning of that line? Now is the something, something, whatever, blah, 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 right? But actually, if you read it in the verse and you give meaning to the verse, what's the first line building to? discontent. And and why? Right? Son of York, right? If you let the line rise, it tells you its meaning. And suddenly it's a lot more clear, isn't it? The meaning behind the words, how to read it, how to play it. Now, obviously good actors will make this sound sane if you can listen to clips and performances from all over the place. But the ones that are informed by the verse are the most interesting because they're what the bard wrote for us to perform. Uh, I've included, just as a little extra bonus, an excellent little sketch involving lots of awesome British actors arguing over perhaps the most famous line of iambic pentameter, to be or not to be, that is the question, which is, one, hilarious, I mean, the, the sketch is hilarious, and two, it's filled with stars, but now you know something that the characters in that sketch don't. The line rises. So if anyone ever asks you, it's to be or not to be, that is the question. And indeed, it is the question that the rest of the speech will be about. Not whether to be or not to be or that. It's the question. Okay, I, I want to stop for a second for those of you who are confused. If it seems like I just got like super excited about screaming every other syllable and now I'm reading them like, chicken intestines. I get it. This is an acquired skill. As we go through the plays, we're going to keep building these muscles. They're hard to work on at first. And also, this is literary criticism, which means that unlike looking at something under a microscope or the stars in the sky, there's a lot of guessing and meaning and opinion to this. So all I'm doing, all I'm welcoming you, my verse skeptic, to do is try it. See how the lines change under this focus. So let's put it all together and let's apply it to that first couple of pages that you read of Macbeth that you hated so much. So I am going to do what your English teacher didn't, and I'm going to introduce this play to you properly. Macbeth. And the first thing you need to know is that way before any, any, anybody got to see this play, they were hearing about it. 
This play is written by Shakespeare for James, who is the Scottish king. And I'm going to get to that in a second. But it is a horror movie. James is a horror movie buff. He's the buddy who's showing you saw and hostile and all the blood and guts he can get. He loves it. That's what he wants court entertainment to be. In fact, my Shakespeare nerds, uh, a lot of people think that the version that we have from the second folio, the one you read in high school, is actually just from a court performance with even more of the blood added in and some of the higher concepts that the public would have recognized taken out. But more importantly, it's about two very scary things for a 1590s audience. The first is Scottish people, right? Despite the fact that the king is Scottish, Scottish people are kind of like ISIS or ninjas. It's hard to describe in modernity just how sort of average Londoners would have felt and the fact that their king suddenly is one. But I think if you imagine this taking place between ninja ISIS members, you have a better idea. And the second thing is, this play is about witches. And witches were real, right? This is not a Halloween costume. People are convicted of witchcraft on a pretty regular basis at this point in history. I mean, not every day, but regular. It's not unheard of. And people are the victims of witches. You just have a cousin who got cursed by a witch or died from a witch's spell or something like that. And so all of this is very scary. Plus, the church is not just freaking out because the king is Scottish, but the church is freaking out about this play in general. It's about killing a king. It's about killing a Scottish king. And there's witchcraft and there's prophecy. They're losing their minds. So by the time it comes down to you, it's like, Faces of Death times a million, right? I don't know if you were the same generation, but I remember when Faces of Death, that cheap sort of grindhouse movie came out, like everybody was trying to get it banned from video stores and stuff, and it's that, plus it's got a plot to assassinate the president maybe in there, right? So you are psyched for this thing. You're sitting down for the remake of Evil Dead. The play starts, there's no curtains, there's no nothing, right? The play starts, and out comes three guys, Two nobles, right? One of whom is the king, one of whom is like a general, and one, the general, is dragging a bloody, wounded man. Right? The first thing we see is just blood. And Duncan, and again, I'm going to exaggerate the verse here for meaning. I'm going to do this line by line. Duncan says, What bloody man is that he can report? What can he report? We're about to find out. What's he going to report? as seemeth by his plight of the revolt. Revolt! There's a revolution going on among the ISIS ninjas that are fighting each other. The new estate. And then, here's the coolest thing. So his line is actually the new estate, and then it ends. And then Malcolm's line is, this is the sergeant. And that's why I mentioned original pronunciation. Sergeant is a word that we we squeezed it together. But for them, it's sergeant, right? And it's actually, it completes the verse, so you know he's interrupting him, right? So Duncan, the king, is like the new estate, and Malcolm's in such a hurry, he goes, this is the sergeant, right? So it's an interruption, it's a cue to both the actors and the audience at the urgency of what he's saying. Who, like a good and hardy soldier, fought against my captivity, hail brave friend, nothing. There's a break in the line there. You hear that last beat is missing. It's awkward, right? Is he trying to wake him? Is he trying to shake him apart? Either way, it's awkward, and we're supposed to feel that, right? 
against my captivity, hail brave hand. Say to the king the knowledge of the broil. So now we know Duncan's the king. I mean, he was probably wearing some kind of crown, so the audience would have been aware. But now we know he's the king, as thou didst leave it. And then there's more lines with more text, all of it. But all of a sudden, it comes alive, right? This horror movie, this action scene, a king and a bloody man brought to life exactly the way it should have been. You just need to know how to read it. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening. I know this one's a a little bit different than the first one was, which was a lot more academic and a lot more written out and a lot less passionate, obviously. But I think when it comes to talking about how to read Shakespeare, you need passion, you need example to get it going. Uh, Next up, we're going to be analyzing one of my favorite plays, scene by scene, the thing that I think everyone should begin with, Romeo and Juliet. We're going to be talking about the history of it. I'm going to be breaking it down scene by scene. You can feel free to read along or read now and get ahead. Uh, If you're a beginner, don't worry about it. I'm going to go through it scene by scene. You can stop and pause the next blog. And if you're enjoying this series, let me know. If you hate it, let me know because uh, if you're a patron, I want to hear from you. And if you're a patron i want to hear from you i don't take it seriously but i do want to hear what you thought of it um and there's no patron afterthoughts for this one again because so much had to go but there will be stuff in the future if you enjoyed this please head up to patreon.com forward slash eli bosnick give as little as a dollar give as much as 85 billion dollars please do not give 86 billion dollars i cannot tell you how often I've asked people not to pledge $86 billion and they keep doing it. It's very upsetting. But you get all sorts of rewards. I got another Patreon hangout coming up this month. You're going to get to meet some of my favorite people. We'll do sort of a live Q&A. Tons of fun stuff planned. More sketches are going to be shot in the next month or so, by which I mean 30 days. So lots of fun stuff ahead. Uh, and thank you for following with me. If you're loving this, I hope you're loving it as much as I am. Uh, and if you're hating it, don't worry. It's going to be over eventually. Like all things, memento mori.